You are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. I remember Annette and I watching this documentary about this young Canadian journalist who went to the country of Somalia and Africa. And, uh, and she was abducted there, and she was held captive for 15 months. Uh, they were waiting for her family to pay a ransom. The only problem was she came from a family without means. And there was no way they could pay the amount of money. She talked candidly about the abuse, about the torture that she underwent during those 15 months. And when she was asked the question, how did you emotionally maintain, how did you, how did you make it through all of those months of what you went through? She said, I never gave up hope that my mother was working relentlessly toward my freedom. And I believed every day that I was there that one day my mother would make sure that I was freed and she would bring me home. Hope is a very powerful force. And so what I want to do over these next few weeks that we spend together during the season of Advent is talk to you about hope, okay? Um, I, I, love the, I love the phrase conspiracy of hope. When I think about conspiracy, I think about a plan that has been put together um, to overthrow or overturn a system or a, a power structure, maybe a government. And so what first comes to my mind when I think about conspiracy, since only a couple of weeks ago was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, I think about all those theories of conspiracy around his assassination. And so people are asking questions for years, like, you know, was it the CIA? Was it the mob? Was it Lyndon Johnson and some of his associates who put together a conspiracy to take down the most powerful political figure in the world? The first time that I ever heard the word conspiracy associated with God was in a book written by a guy whose name is Dallas Willard. And the book was called The Divine Conspiracy. And the idea is that God has put together a plan to overturn evil in human history and to bring hope to humanity. And so John sums it up in his gospel and he said the plan looked a lot like this. God loved the world so much. That he gave his one and only son. And that little son came in the form of a baby. Who would have ever suspected a baby? What a brilliant plan. To overturn evil. That whosoever believes in him would not perish. But have life everlasting. So if you want to grab a Bible. I'm going to be in the gospel of Luke for the next few weeks. Okay. We'll be in chapters 1 and 2 this morning in chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And I want to start. By reading uh, just the first five verses of the Gospel of Luke. I'll chat a minute and then we'll get to the text for the day, okay? So we'll put the words on the screen. Here's how it goes. Luke says, many have undertaken to draw up an account, meaning to write down the things that have been fulfilled among us. He's referring to the Gospel, okay? The story of Jesus. So, so a lot of people have decided they're going to write this down. Um, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of his word. So we got the information from the people who were with Jesus, who watched him perform miracles, who walked with him, listened to him teach. So with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything, 
from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account. So Luke says, I know other people have written it down. I decided I would write it down as well. And he says, I wrote it most excellent, Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Theophilus was a Greek man, a Gentile man rather, and Luke writes his gospel and addresses it to him. My, my Brittany is my oldest daughter who is now 25, but when she was in high school, in college, and even out of college, she worked as a nanny. And one family she worked with a long time was a Jewish family. And Brittany says, I remember the first time that I went to work with them. They're, they're giving me all of this instruction. Brittany, we're Orthodox Jews. We don't know how much you understand about an Orthodox Jew, but here are the things that we would never eat. Here are things that we will not do. Brittany said they were very generous to her. Like, she said they always rounded up to the next hundred dollars. So if they owed her two twenty, they would pay her three hundred. Most generous people she said ever worked for. She said, Dad, I went there to babysit for them one Saturday night. And when I walked in the door, he paid me what he owed me to babysit that night. And then he gave me a hundred dollar bill and he said, the boys haven't eaten. Why don't you take them and get them dinner and you can keep the change. And I said, Brittany, take those kids to McDonald's and tell them to order from the dollar menu, okay? <laughs> We're going to come out shiny on this one. <laughs> Brittany said, the first time that I met the boys, the youngest boy said, hi, Brittany. And then he walks over to me and he says, Brittany, are you Jew or are you Gentile? And she said, I'm Gentile. And she said, he shrugged and he said, man, I think everybody's Gentiles. Do you know what Luke was? He was a Gentile. Did you know that Luke is the only person to write in the New Testament who wasn't a Jew? The only one. And he writes his gospel to Gentiles. Not like Matthew who writes to the Jewish people to present Jesus as the Messiah. No, Luke writes... To the Gentile world. And we don't have to decode his language. He's writing in a way that you and I can understand. And so we don't know a lot more about Luke except that he was a physician, that he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Otherwise, he's only mentioned three times in the Bible, and that is when Paul is closing his letters to churches. And three times he says, the people who are with me bring you greetings, and all three times he names Luke. And we know that he probably spent two years in prison in Caesarea with Paul. Paul said, he is my fellow worker in the Gospel. So Luke tells the story. You ready for the story? Here we go. Verse 5. In the time of Herod, which is typical of Luke because he gives lots of detail and lots of precision. Precision because he wants you to know with certainty that everything that you're hearing is correct. So you can go and you can back it up by the calendar. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. You've got to listen really close to these first three verses because there will be a quiz, okay? The first question on the quiz is, what did Zechariah do? What was his occupation? He was a priest. He belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. And both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. 
But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. So what was Zechariah's occupation? He was a what? He was married and his wife's name was? Elizabeth. That's right. What does it say about the life they lived before God? They were what? Elizabeth a week. They were what? Righteous and blameless. That's right. But tension enters the story. There's a problem. What's the problem? They are childless. Does he tell you anything about their age? They're very what? Very old. Let me keep reading. So once when Zachariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now this is a big deal. So when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Again, more details by Luke. And so when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. I think you got the picture, but this is an old man, right? Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you're to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. That's another way to say and my wife is an old woman. And so the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. And so meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple because he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And so when his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. And here's what Elizabeth says. The Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So I ask God's blessings on his word for us today. Amen. The the, the season of Advent is, is a season where we focus on hope. And we focus on 
joy and we focus on fulfilled promises. Which has to serve as a difficult reminder for some. For things have not yet been fulfilled. Or hope has not yet come to fruition. Or prayers have not yet been answered. This is what I mean. We're still hoping, Pastor Rick. We're still praying. It hasn't happened yet. But we're still praying. We're still hoping. The financial crisis that we're in is still a crisis. It hasn't been resolved. But we're still praying. We're still hoping. We're still praying for our daughter. We're still praying for our son. We haven't seen a lot of change yet. We haven't seen a lot of progress yet. But we're still praying. We're still hoping. That relationship that has gone sour has not gotten better yet. I'm still praying about it. I'm still hoping that that's going to turn around. But at this point, it hasn't turned around. Still fighting the disease. I still have cancer. We're hoping and we're praying for remission. It hasn't happened yet. But we're believing and we're praying and we're hoping that we're going to get cured of this thing and we're all going to get better. I'm going to go out on a limb, okay? And, and I'm going to just assume that probably every person in this room is hoping or praying for something. I, I assume that everybody in the room is probably hoping or praying for something. My, my friend Dave prayed for 14 years that he and his wife could have a baby. It's a long time. He says to me, Rick, I, d- I don't know that anybody can understand the pain that we have experienced. And unless you're in our position and everybody around you is having a baby. And he said, there were times that we were tempted to think to ourselves, maybe God has just decided that everybody else in the world would make great parents except us. You, you understand, don't you, that there was a time in Zechariah's life when he calls out to God when he gets on his knees, when he looks up to heaven and he says to God, God, please, could Elizabeth and I have a baby? I mean, according to what I read to you in Scripture, there was a time in Zachariah's life when he got on his knees, he looks up to heaven, he cries out to God, and he says, God, could I ask one favor of you, please? Could you give Elizabeth and me a baby? All we want is a baby. When, when, when prayers aren't answered, and we want to believe, and we try to keep hope alive, and we really do love God, still yet even we're tempted to give up. And you can hear it in Zechariah's words to the angels, you know, to the angel rather, uh, 
We're old people. That season of our life is past. We're not expecting that to come about. I think when prayers aren't answered, we try to to find somebody to blame. And and usually we start with ourselves. I can't tell you how many times since I've been a pastor, I've sat down with somebody who has looked at me and said, Pastor Rick, do you think the reason this isn't happening? Do you think the reason we're going through all of this stuff? Do you think it's because of what I did a long time ago? Do you think God is punishing me? The, the, the only problem, the only problem with that kind of thinking is that it is not scripturally something that we can prove. It is not biblical. The only problem with that kind of thinking is that it is wrong. Because when you read in verse 6, what you read is that Zechariah and Elizabeth are what? They are righteous in the sight of God and that they keep His laws and His decrees blamelessly. And God says, I don't have a problem with Zechariah and Elizabeth. In the culture they lived, in their world, if you were barren, it meant that God disapproved of you in some way. That's what it meant. If you were barren, it meant it was because of divine disapproval. And if you had a wife that was barren, you could divorce her and get you one that could bear a child because obviously she has done something to tick God off. And the only reason that that kind of thinking is not good is because it's wrong. Now don't misunderstand me. I do know that sin has consequences. But there's a big difference in saying, I suffer because of the consequences of my sin. Or to say that God is mad at me for something I did a long time ago and he's trying to get even with me. Big difference. I remember, I remember years ago standing, I was 20. I was standing in a bathroom at somebody's house that I didn't know and I'm looking into the mirror. They allowed us to come in their house and change clothes. Um, my, my sister and I, myself rather, and, and some other people that were in their early 20s that went to some churches around where we lived had gotten together. And, and we were kind of going to churches and we would, we would sing and we would tell our story about how Jesus had changed our lives. I mean, Jesus, Jesus changed my life. And I remember standing looking in that mirror and I remember having this very clear thought. And the thought was, one day, what you're getting ready to do tonight, one day this is what your whole life is going to be about. You're going to be a, you're going to be a minister. And, and I remember a grin coming across my face as I looked into that mirror. It was the first time that I embraced that calling. Once in a while, we stand a young person up here and we, and we tell you that, that they believe that God has called them into ministry and we give them a license, a local minister's license. And, and for years, that young person has been wrestling and praying and trying to understand God's will because somehow they feel singled out. That, that God wants them to do something like He's not asking everybody else to do. It was very different for Zechariah. 
Because Zechariah gets in the ministry because he was born a priest. He was born a descendant of Aaron. And every descendant of Aaron becomes a priest. And so all of his brothers were priests and all of his cousins were priests because they were descendants of Aaron. At the time that Zechariah was a priest on the earth, there were probably about 20,000 priests in the nation of Israel. It was really more than they needed to perform all the formal tasks of being a priest. And so here's how it worked. Three times a year, all the priests were busy at Passover and at Pentecost and at the Feast of Tabernacles. Other than that, you worked one week every six months. That was it. The way that it was determined what you would do during that one week was by casting lots. The most coveted task for those 20,000 priests would be to somehow be chosen to serve in the temple in Jerusalem, burning incense before the Lord, before the sacrifice in the morning and after the sacrifice in the evening. And Zechariah gets picked. It is his 15 minutes of glory. It's the one thing that every priest wanted to do, and he gets to do it. And so there he is in the temple in Jerusalem, burning incense before God. And an angel appears. I was, I was in a city other than here. I was down in Texas, in San Antonio the other day, and I was walking on the city street, and man, it was cold. Even in San Antonio, it was ice cold. And, and I passed by this beautiful Catholic church, and, and I kind of wanted, you know, to, to, to go in, partly because it was really cold, and I knew it would be warm in there. And the other reason was I kind of wanted to see the architecture of just the ceiling and the church. And so I slipped in through this very small foyer and into the sanctuary. The only, the only person that I saw in the church at that time was an elderly man, elderly man who was sitting over here on my left side, and he was facing the front of the church. And there was very faint music being played, and there were candles burning, and it was really warm in there. I was taken aback by the atmosphere. I wouldn't have uttered a sound over a whisper out of respect. The next day I began to wonder if the atmosphere that I sensed in that Catholic church downtown in San Antonio, Texas was anything like the atmosphere that Zachariah experienced in the temple that day when he stood before the altar. That was before the curtain that separated him from the Holy of Holies as he was burning incense to the Lord his God. And then all of a sudden, an angel appears. I mean, can you imagine? Don't be afraid, Zechariah. What do you mean, don't be afraid? You're an angel. <laughs> Of course I'm afraid. I've dreamed all of my life of standing here and doing this, but you were not in my dream. What do you mean, don't be afraid? I'm afraid. The Lord has heard your prayer. I wonder if his mind began to rush. What prayer? I mean, I've prayed a lot of prayers. I've asked for a lot of things in my life. Elizabeth is going to bear you a son. Wait a minute, that's a prayer I prayed a long time ago. 
I mean, we are past that season of our life. We are old people. Ah, now you messed up. Now you're not going to be able to talk until the sun gets here. But you're still going to have the sun. I remember when we moved to Nashville to pastor our first church. I look back on it and I would just say uh, it was a hard season for us. We were, you know, young and we were pastoring this real little church. They couldn't pay us very much money. I got a job delivering newspapers to try to make up to like have a full salary. And so I got up at 3 o'clock every morning Seven days a week, and I delivered newspapers. Even on Sunday, I would get done and get back to the church about 6.30 to get ready for the day. And I remember we left school with a lot of loans. We brought a lot of school loans with us when we came. And I remember life just being kind of hard. One, one day, there was a lady who had had a baby who attended our church, and I thought Brittany, who was about four years old at the time, would like to go with me to see the lady and the little baby. And so we go to see, you know, the baby and... Uh, there's a lot of beautiful babies, but sometimes I pray over some ugly babies. I'll just be honest with you, okay? And so I prayed for the lady and her ugly baby, and we left. We get down to the parking garage, and it really is just an act of laziness, to be honest with you. I did not want to get this card out of my pocket. It seemed like trouble, and so we pull up to the booth, and there's an arm there, and you know, holding your car in. And so uh, I say to the lady, um, you know, I'm clergy. Do you need to see my card? And she goes, oh, no, that's fine. Have a good day. And so the arm raises and we drive out. And Brittany is over here in the front seat. And she has the look of just utter confusion on her face. And I said, Brittany, what's wrong? And she said, Daddy, you're clergy? And I said, yeah, do you know what that means? And just kind of experiencing all that happened, Brittany said, does it mean you don't have any money? I said, that's exactly what it means, Brittany. See, in my line of work, we'll come and see you if you have a baby, but we come after the baby is born. Any other procedure, we will come and pray with you before the, before the procedure. But if you're having a baby, we're not showing up until that baby's here. That's just the way we function as pastors. Zachariah and Elizabeth had a very different culture. Here's how it worked. When a lady went into birth, went into uh, labor, I'm sorry, ready to give birth... And she was almost there. A messenger goes running through the village, rounding up everybody. And everybody comes. Musicians even show up. And then they all await for the birth. And when the birth finally occurs, they make the announcement. If they say that it's a boy, the musicians begin to play. And they begin to celebrate. And there's dancing. And there's a party that takes place. If they make the announcement that it's a girl, everybody goes home. It's something we don't understand. But the Jesus who came lived his life to change that kind of thing. And so there's this party, they're celebrating, it's a boy. It's not only a boy, but it's Elizabeth in her old age. What do you want to name him? And she says, I want to name him John. And they say, Elizabeth, you don't have one relative named John. She's delirious from giving birth. Go talk to Zachariah and ask him what he wants to name it. And he writes out on a piece of paper, John. And immediately his tongue is loosed and he speaks. And you know what everybody said? What is this child going to be? 
God is doing a great thing. When prayers aren't answered yet, what do you do? You know what Elizabeth and Zechariah did? They did some more of verse 6. They lived righteous before God and they kept His commands. But He has not answered your prayers. <laughs> Doesn't matter. We're going to do some more of verse 6. That's what you do when God hasn't answered prayers yet. They would say, yeah, you just do some more of verse 6. You just live right before God. And you trust Him. We had a lady who attended our church die a few years ago. Prior to attending our church, she had attended another church in town, but came to our church to worship with her adult children and grandchildren. So when she died, they said, our mom would really like for you to do the funeral, but we know she would have really liked for her old pastor to be involved. And I said, bring him. And so he and I did the funeral together. And after the funeral service, we're headed to the cemetery and he says to me, would you want to ride in my car with me to the cemetery? I'd like to get to know you a little bit. We pastor here in the same city. And I said, sure. And so I got in his car and we're driving to the cemetery. And he's asking me questions like, you know, um, do you have kids? And how old are they? And how long have you lived here? And, and so I'm answering those questions. And then in turn, I begin to ask him questions. So uh, do you have kids? And how old are they? And he says, I have a boy. And we had a girl. And she died five years ago when she was eight. I'm sitting in the passenger seat of this guy's car and I just said to him, I am so sorry. I, I, I know that God gives us grace in times like that of our lives, but I can't imagine what your family has gone through and what you still go through. I'm, I'm so sorry. As we rode alone, he tells me this story. He says, my daughter was seven when she got this brain tumor that was cancerous. She believed God was going to heal her. Um, I believe God was going to heal her. I, our church, we were all praying for her healing. And when she died, he said, I was devastated. I, I was confused. I was hurting. I was so low. God, God has walked with us. He said about two years after she died, I was at a hospital one day and I ran into this nurse, just bumped into her in the hallway that we had known years ago. And she said, oh, pastor, I, I just wanted to tell you that I, I'm so sorry about your little girl. And we all heard about it when she passed away, and, and, uh, and, and we're so sorry. And he said, somewhere in the conversation, she said, I've often wondered about you. How, how did you keep your faith through that? And he said, I, I didn't feel like I answered her question very well. I kind of stumbled around, and I, I felt like I just kind of made a mess of trying to respond to her. And, and, and I left the hospital, and that afternoon it really bothered me. And that night it bothered me. And into the night it bothered me. And finally, 
I knew what my answer should have been. And the next day I got in my car and I drove back to the hospital hoping she was working and she was. And I said, I hope you don't think I'm weird that I've come to find you. But I didn't like the answer that I gave you yesterday, but I have an answer. You asked me how I kept my faith through the death of my eight-year-old daughter. And he said, I don't think it was really like that. I think my faith kept me. It was my faith that held me steady. I would be reluctant to say that I carried my faith through that experience. I think my faith carried me through that experience. There were days when I don't think I could have done or thought or made any decision. But my faith held me steady. What do you do when things go terribly wrong in life? What do you do when you pray and you pray and you pray and you love God and you want to believe and you want to keep hope alive, but prayers aren't yet answered? What do you do? You do some more, verse 6. You live righteous in the sight of God and you keep His laws and His commands. And you trust Him with your future. You want to get really honest with me about this story? It's not what they prayed for. They wanted a kid when they were young. They lived for years with disgrace. And they sure didn't think they were going to get a John the Baptist out of the deal. The most prominent religious leader of his day, viewed as a prophet in the pattern of the Old Testament, the forerunner for the Messiah. I wonder if there was ever a day when Zechariah looked at Elizabeth and said, we didn't ask for that, did we? Most of my life, I feel like that I've only peeled back a corner of the picture. And I can't see the big picture yet. Sometimes I want to say, God, can you just rip it off? I just want to see the big picture. Let me see what you're doing. And I just kind of see a corner. I just get glimpses. I just get hints. What do you do? When you can't see the big picture, you do some more verse 6. And you trust God with your future. And you watch His plan unfold. You're going to sing that song for me? Can you come and do that? Let me, let me, let me pray. Lord, it's a snowy, cold day. Sometimes life feels like this day, cold and harsh. Sometimes it feels like the windows of heaven are kind of closed up and shut. And we pray and we don't feel we're getting through. And 
And then you remind us that you are a God who brings hope into our lives. And who would have ever dreamed that you would have restored the hope of Zechariah and Elizabeth and that you would give them a baby? Restore hope here today, I pray. And may somebody walk out of this place today with a handful of hope that they didn't walk in with. Pray this in Jesus' name. I've had questions without answers. I've known sorrow. I have known one thing that I'll cling to You are faithful Jesus you're true When hope is lost I'll call you Savior When pain surrounds I'll call you Healer When silence falls I'll call you here 
stand with me. We're going to have some pastors that will be up here today if you would like for them to pray for you. If you want to come and spend some time praying before you go, we'll sing some more and you're welcome to do that. If you're feeling a bit hopeless in your situation today, there is Jesus and so there is hope. So let's sing together, okay? If you want to come, feel free to. If you want to be anointed, get a pastor's attention. They will anoint you. Feel free to come. When hope is lost, I'll call you Savior. When pain surrounds, I'll call you healer. When silence falls, you'll be the song within my When hope is lost, I'll call you Savior. When pain surrounds, I'll call you healer. When silence falls, you'll be the song within my heart. Sing, I will praise. I will praise you. tears fall still I will sing to you I will praise you Jesus praise you through the suffering still I will sing when hope when hope is lost I'll call you Savior when pain surrounds I'll call you Feel free to stay as long as you like. If you want to come and pray with others, you're welcome to. God bless you. I hope you're here tonight at 7 o'clock, okay? Join us for a great night of praise. You're dismissed. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.